You would at this time take out your copies of God's Word. Turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. You can find that in the Pew Bible in front of you on the bottom of page 981. We are finally moving on from verses 1 through 11, in which we spent six weeks, but we're not actually really moving on. The heading there in verse 12 in the ESV isn't particularly helpful because it implies that we're starting a new section. It implies that we're starting a new topic. Well, we're not. Verses 12 through 16 are directly connected to verses 1 through 11. Paul is still talking about the same thing, which is what? It's knowing Christ. The thing that he has said is of surpassing worth, the most important thing. Life itself is bound up in this phrase, knowing Christ. Joy itself is, found, is bound up in this phrase, knowing Christ. The thing for which we all are looking is found in this phrase, knowing Christ. And so, just like we're not really moving on from verses 1 through 11, you don't ever really move on from knowing Christ. It's never, okay, now I know Christ, what's next? No, Paul specifically says, verse 8, now I know Christ. Verse 10, now I want to know Christ more. We saw in verse 8 that Paul has gained Christ. How? Righteousness. A righteousness not of his own, but a righteousness from God that depends on faith. We have to be righteous to be with a righteous God. We are not righteous. So the good news of the gospel is that the righteous God gives to us the righteousness that we need by grace, through faith in Christ. We are not righteous, but he counts us righteous. He credits to us the righteousness of Christ who came to live and die in our place so that we could be justified, declared righteous. That's what Paul means by knowing Christ in verse 8. But then we saw that he means something somewhat different by knowing Christ in verse 10. He already knows Christ, verse 8, but still in verse 10 he desires to know Christ, and he explains that in terms of becoming like him. Paul wants to be more like Christ so that he can more love Christ. Paul knows that sin separates us from the sinless God. He knows that sin remains in him. So his desire then is to grow in godliness, to become more like Jesus so that he can even better know Jesus. So in verse 10, we saw that Paul's desire is that he be further sanctified, made righteous, made more like Jesus. And that's still Paul's focus in verses 12 through 16. Just in case you're somewhat like me, a little bit intimidated, a little bit convicted, possibly even somewhat discouraged by Paul's passion to live as Christ, I'd choose death if that means being with Christ. I happily count everything as loss simply to gain Christ, just in case you're like me and painfully aware of how short you fall of this. Paul steps back in verse 12, and he wants you to know that he is also like me and you as well. He is also painfully aware of how short he falls of this. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this, not that I am already Perfect. Paul's not where he wants to be either. And so he lays out for us in these verses how he wants to get there and how we can get there as well. This morning, I want to look at the Christian life as the imperfect but passionate pursuit of Christ. Because to be a Christian is to pursue Christ. It is to have an all-consuming passion for Christ. And, and I want our passion to be Paul's passion. And we see here that Paul's passion is a person. And so our verses this morning are about Paul's passionate pursuit of that person. But, and this is important, to make sure we don't set up some sort of unbiblical, impossible standard that will lead only to discouragement and even encouragement to give up, we have to understand that this passionate pursuit will also be imperfect. The, passion in, the passionate pursuit will be plagued by sin and self. Paul wants to encourage us with these verses by giving us a realistic picture of the Christian life. By making sure we didn't misunderstand him in the previous verses. He wants you to pursue Christ, but he wants you to understand 
what that actually looks like and how that's actually possible. So that's what we're going to attempt to do this morning. What does the Christian life look like? What does an imperfect but passionate pursuit of Christ look like? Four points there to help guide us this morning. Number one, you are not yet fully like Christ. Number two, so press on to fully take hold of Christ. Number three, press on to fully take hold of Christ because, here's your motive, because Christ has already fully taken hold of you. Man, these are long points this week. And then finally, number four, press on to fully take hold of Christ by setting your mind on Christ. Let's read the text. What does it really mean to pursue Christ? Paul is going to give us some clues here. I'll read for you Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. This is what God wants to say to you today. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Bow with me and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you speak through it. Father, we thank you that you speak through the preaching of your word. Father, we know that that is only possible by your spirit. And so we ask now for your spirit to speak through these words. Father, give us understanding. Father, give us delight in the reading and the preaching of your word. Give me delight in the the preaching of your word. Father, give all of us delight in receiving the preaching of your word. Father, help us now to focus. Father, help me to focus simply on the, the proclaiming of Jesus Christ. Help every single one of us Lay aside everything that is uh, upcoming this day, everything that is upcoming this week, everything that is grabbing for our attention. Father, arrest us right now with thoughts of Jesus Christ. Father, help us now, I pray. Help me, please, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, Paul's main point in these verses is pretty clear because he repeats himself. He says the same thing basically three times. Verse 12, not that I've already attained this, Not that I'm already perfect. Verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But what exactly is he talking about? What is the this that he has not obtained? Well, ignoring the heading in the ESV that that interrupts the flow of Paul's argument, the this must connect back to the previous verse. 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 12, not that I have already obtained this the resurrection from the dead. Well, of course he hasn't obtained that. He's alive, right? Resurrection first requires death. By not yet dying, Paul has not yet satisfied the basic prior condition for resurrection. But remember that that we talked about last week, Paul's not talking here about his future bodily resurrection in verse 11, right? which means that he cannot be talking about that as what he has not yet obtained here in verse 12. Verse 11, resurrection from the dead, must be related to verse 10, resurrection, context, context. Always read the passage in light of the surrounding verses, because it'd be so easy to just read resurrection and think immediately of bodily resurrection, but that's not what Paul is thinking of, so we'd be wrong. Remember verse 10, Paul directly connects the power of the resurrection to becoming like Christ, or as we've said, to sanctification. The process by which God changes us and grows us and makes us righteous like Christ. So we looked in detail last week at Romans 6, verse 4. We were buried with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. But Paul's saying that just as we were buried with Christ, we were raised with him. And then Paul goes on to explain what he means 
by being raised with Christ as walking in newness of life. And so he goes on to say that our old self was crucified. We have died to sin. We have been set free from sin. In other words, we have been and are being sanctified. We're being made holy and godly and righteous. God saves and he changes. He justifies and he sanctifies. Romans 8, 29. He's conforming us to the image of his son. That's what God is up to. He's making us like Jesus. And that's what Paul has been talking about in, when he references the resurrection of the dead. And that's what he has not yet fully obtained. He is not yet fully conformed to the image of Christ. Which is our first point there. Christians are not yet fully like Christ. This is a simple point, it seems, but it's an important point because there are people out there teaching and acting like they are. There are a number of major landmark sermons that have been preached over the course of Christian history. That'd be an interesting study to go back and read through and trace church history through those sermons. But one of those sermons was preached in 1741 by John Wesley, and it was preached on this passage. What was the title of that message? Not the imperfect pursuit of Christ, but Christian perfection. Christian perfection. And in it, Wesley explains his belief in the possibility of perfection. He, he says that Christians can obtain complete sanctification in this life. And he defines that complete sanctification as being Perfected, And he goes on to say that that means being perfected means to be without sin. He says that the heart becomes so full of the love of God that there's just no room for evil. The Christian can be so conformed to Christ that there is no sin in the Christian. It's ironic that his passage was this passage that we are looking at. He does some interesting things to make his case from this passage. The first verse. Not that I am already perfect. Imperfect, brothers and sisters in Christ, speaking to you as an imperfect pastor, be encouraged that Paul wasn't perfect either. We are not yet and never fully will be like Christ in this life. Galatians 5.17, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There are opposing, warring principles within you. Romans 7, Paul again, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 1 Peter 2.11 talks about the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Christians are not yet fully like Christ. Paul's desire is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And this is sanctifying, changing, sin-killing power. But he's telling us that he's not completely there yet. And thus then to not listen to anyone who tells you that they are. Because they're not either. And you're not. And if you listen to people that say that they are and that you can be, when you run up against reality, your own remaining sinfulness, then it will be, it will be devastating. You would say, what's, what's wrong with me? Wesley says I can be perfect. How come he can do it and I can't? Am I even really a Christian? It sets up this unbiblical standard that ironically doesn't encourage holiness uh, in the pursuit of Christ, but actually ends up hindering it. So just in case you misunderstood him earlier, Paul wants to be clear. He's not there yet. He has not com obtained complete sanctification. He's not yet where he wants to be. He's not perfect. I read one story about a pastor who was teaching on his complete sanctification and he hadn't sinned in three years and another pastor, a reformed fellow, went and talked to him and said, oh, hey, you know, like, well, well, what does your wife think of this doctrine? At all, she doesn't believe in it yet. Right, because obviously, good luck at home. Uh, you see me for an hour a week sometimes. I could probably convince you that I'm pretty great. My wife and my kids see me all week. They know that it is not uh, possible or true. Paul says he's not perfect. I, I don't know if these are a thing still up here 
Um, they, were, they were in the South big for a while. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven? That still, have you ever seen those? It's usually on the bumper of a car that swerves in front of you and cuts you off. Right, it's the thing uh, right there. There's an important truth conveyed with that bumper sticker. Right? It's, it's the same as our first point. Christians aren't yet fully like Christ. And so Christians aren't yet perfect. That's true. Christianity is not the claim that we are better people morally, um, therefore we are saved. Right? We're not saved by our goodness. We are not perfect. True enough. But does the bumper sticker unhelpfully convey something else as well? Christians aren't perfect. True. Christians are just forgiven. It kind of sounds like that. Christians are just forgiven. Well, is that true? Because we spent all of last week trying to make the case that we are not just forgiven. We are not just justified. That is not the whole of salvation. That's not all that God is doing. It's possible that that bumper sticker is a mask for some deficient theology. Well, yeah, I cut you off in traffic and flipped you off and almost killed you, but no big deal. I'm not perfect. Uh, just forgiven. No, that's not salvation. Our sermon this morning isn't just point one. Paul doesn't assert that he is not yet fully like Christ. Stop and leave it there. Christians are not perfect. But as we're going to see, Paul says, also, nor are Christians passive. It's not, I'm not yet fully like Christ. Oh, well, it's I'm not yet fully like Christ. Press on. Point number two. Christians press on to fully take hold of Christ. Look at verse 12 again. I'm using the terminology of the NIV there. The NIV of verse 12 says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I like that take hold language. The NASB says lay hold. Uh, the King James says apprehended, which is a good word, but now it's almost become like a mental uh, thing to us. We've, we've considered it. We thought it. No, I, I like lay hold because it's a little more aggressive. And the Greek is an aggressive word. It means to seize by force. It means to arrest. It means to, to capture. In Mark 9, 18, there's a story about the father with the son who's possessed by an unclean spirit. And the father says to Jesus, whenever uh, the spirit seizes him, it throws him down. It's the same word that we have here in our text. It, it, it seizes him by force. It lays hold of him. Paul says that his desire is to seize and to lay hold of Christ. This is no mild thing. It's not passive. It's, it's passionate. And we need this word because there's, there's such a Christian complacency that plagues so much of the church today. And I see that same Christian complacency that plagues so much of my heart today. I'm forgiven. No more hell. Sweet. Right now, now I can kind of take it easy and, and live my life and get back to, to what I really want to do. Oh, that's so different than what we see here. The Christian life as, as active, as dynamic, as moving forward, as pressing on. And listen, it's precisely because of our awareness of point number one, that we have not yet already obtained this and are not already perfect, have not already made it our own, that we then are moved to strive to do so. Listen, I know that I use sports illustrations too much. I didn't use one last week because I knew this text was coming up this week. But it's not completely my fault because Paul does it too. Right? Paul was clearly a sports fan. I've told you about the pit preachers at the university, right? UNC, where I went to. We lost to Clemson by one last night, the, the number one team in the country. It was very frustrating. Um, but the pit preachers, the central area, it's a pit of bricks down in the middle. There's two beautiful trees. That's where everyone congregates and speaks and everything kind of happens out in front of our dining hall. There's all these pit preachers there. The first guy, Gary, was the one always preaching Christian perfection. This is a very relevant passage to my interactions Gary. The second two guys were the guys I told you about that had the big belts on and these big things here, signs that were like eight or ten feet tall that just listed all the different groups of people who were going to hell. I was on there like six times. Um, and one of them, one of them was sports fan. And I wanted to go up to them with this passage like, what about Paul? Right? Paul obviously likes sports. Because he's taking here a metaphor of, of a race to describe the Christian life. And runners work. I have a great respect for real runners because I am not a real runner. It is both physical and mental 
exertion. It involves great training and great discipline. It has to consume your life and how you eat and how you sleep and how you spend your time because you have to have enough time to train. It's, it's the pursuit of a prize. Look at the end of 13. He's using this language. He talks about straining forward to what lies ahead. It's kind of the image of the guy trying to break the line. Straining forward. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the, the prize. Right? Runners run for a reason. They run to win, or they at least run to, to finish, to accomplish the goal that they set out to obtain. And he's taking this metaphor of running in a race and saying hey, Christians are to be no different than a runner. Christians press on for a prize, for, for the prize, which is what? Look at the rest of 14. For the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And it's amazing how often we use words today differently than the Bible actually uses words, right? We do that with the word call. Are you called? Remember, I had to fill that out in my seminary application and I explained my theology of why their question was wrong uh, on there. And I still got in because they wanted my money. Um, but we ask this question like, oh, are you, are you called? Are you called to ministry? Are you called to this? Well, listen, if you're a Christian, then yes, you are called. Because that's really the only way that the Bible uses the word call, which is called to salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Right? We should use the word call like the Bible uses it. If you are a Christian, then you are and have been called. If you are a Christian, then you are a Christian because you are called. And if you are a Christian, as we are seeing here, it's this call that is our motivation. This is the reason why we pursue Christ. He's the prize, by the way. Christ is the prize. We've seen over and over again in this passage that, that he's what Paul wants. Paul wants complete knowledge. He wants complete likeness. He wants to be like to better love. But he knows that he's not there yet. But since he also knows that knowing Christ is of surpassing worth, since he knows that Christ is the treasure in the field, the pearl of great price, he runs after him. He pursues, and he does so passionately. It's because he knows Christ um, that he is so good, and it's because he knows that he has not yet fully taken hold of him that he then desires to more aggressively pursue and take hold. Of Christ. He's gotten a taste. And he wants more. And so he goes after with complete abandon the one in whom he most delights. Christians press on to fully take hold of Christ because their eyes have been opened to his supremacy, to his beauty, to his majesty, to his worth. They know this. And so they want to know more. They know that the more like Christ they are, the more they can know and love Christ. And so they more and more than desire holiness and Christ-likeness above all else, because that gets them more Christ. So the Christian life is an imperfect, but passionate, progressive pursuit of Christ. Right? But, but how? Or, or, or more importantly first, why is it this? Motive matters. If I just stand here for, the, for our next few minutes and say, hey, Christian life's a pursuit of Christ. Uh, you're not pursuing Christ enough. Uh, you're a failure. Do better. Uh, pursue Christ more. Well, that, that doesn't help anybody. And that harms everybody. So how and why can and should you pursue Christ? First, the why. Only because of point number three. Look at verse 12 again. I love this. Christians press on to fully take hold of Christ because Christ has fully taken hold of them. Paul says he presses on to make it Christ's likeness and ultimately Christ his own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's it. That's, that's the why. There's, there's the grace. There's the gospel. Paul is pursuing that which has first pursued him. The Christian life is not pursuit to gain that which we do not have. It is pursuit to lay hold of and appropriate that which has already been completely given to us in Christ. 
The Christian life is not a pursuit to lay hold of God to get him to do something for us. It's a pursuit to lay more hold of that which he has already done for us. And what a beautiful phrase. Christ Jesus has made me his He has seized me, the word could say. He has arrested me. He has laid hold of me. And I think Paul has to be referencing his experience on the Damascus Road in Acts 9 there. Because this this is how salvation works. He was in no way pursuing God at all. But God dramatically pursued him. Paul was on his way to seize and arrest the church of Christ when Christ himself showed up to seize and arrest Paul wanted to kill God's people. God wanted to make Paul part of God's people. Paul's salvation was entirely of grace. Christ showed up. Christ revealed himself to Paul. Christ rescued Paul. Paul did nothing. He deserved nothing, but he got everything. He got life. He got Christ. Doesn't chapter 3 make more sense in light of Acts 9? Doesn't it his passionate pursuit of Christ make a little more sense in light of Christ's passionate pursuit of him? And it should be no different for any of us. Our salvation story may not be recorded three times in the book of Acts. It may not be as dramatic as Paul's, but it is just as supernatural. And it is just as gracious as Paul's. This is why we have to speak correctly and understand correctly salvation. We we talk about seeking God and we talk about finding him and and choosing him and and I finally figured it out and I chose to believe. Again, all those things are are correct and true to a degree, but not without this first. Paul was not pursuing Christ. Christ pursued him. While we were yet enemies, Christ died. For us. Not while we were cleaning things up and figuring things out and kind of starting to seek him. He's like, oh, good, you found me. Great. No, enemies. You are an enemy of God. And he rescued you. Christians, you have to start there. You can never leave there. Because this is your motivation. This is why we must rightly understand salvation. It's nothing that we do. It's, it's not our own goodness. That's why Paul says in verse 13 that part of pressing on is forgetting what lies behind. And he doesn't mean forgetting everything. There's so many other spots in Scripture where remembering is so important. So what's he talking about? He's talking about verses 5 and 6. He's talking about forgetting all of our accomplishments, all of our credentials. He's talking about not resting in anything that you've done in the past or any experience that you've had, any aisle you've walked or prayer you've prayed. It's not about resting in those things or your own accomplishments. It's about looking forward to Christ and clinging to him. We must understand that everything we have is something that he has done for us and given to us. It's not our goodness. It's his grace. And if you're here with us today and you're not a Christian, welcome. But hear me on this part. The gospel is not about being a good person. It's not about what we have to do to get to God. The gospel is entirely a message of grace. It's entirely a free gift of God. I am a sinner. I deserve death for that sin. There was nothing that I could do about that sin. I could never be good enough for the perfectly good God. But the perfectly good God is also the perfectly gracious God. He has done for me in Christ what I could have never done for myself. I deserved to die for my sin. Christ, who is God, became a man to take my place and to die for me. It's all a gift. And so we say that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We put all the focus on him. He does it. We benefit from it. We receive it. That's all faith is. It's not the thing that we do that he sees and says, aha, good, now I can rescue you. No, faith is us believing and receiving. Faith is simply the the empty hand in which God places all that he has done for us in Christ. You are a sinner. And Christ calls you to come to him and repent and believe, to turn away from your sin and trust in him. It's all his grace. Guys, that grace changes everything. That grace is our motivation. That grace is why we are so passionate about Christ. 
He has saved us. He has pursued us. And because we are so thankful and joyful for receiving that which we did not even seek or earn, we want to know him more. And that means that we desire to pursue him and lay more fully hold of him. It means that we strive after him, not just out of duty or out of discipline, but increasingly out of delight and out of desire. God initiates and he acts. He lays hold of us. And that's what moves us to want to lay more hold of him. He holds us fast. Right? I've used the illustration before of my girls when they're asleep. When they're asleep, they're puppets. Right? They're, they're nothing. They can flop, they flop around. I can move them. I can do anything. Right? Now, salvation is like when I go and get my sleeping daughters and I pick them up and I wrap them in my arms and they are dead weight and I hold them and then they turn and wrap their arms around me in response. Right? I initiate and I lay hold of them and then they respond by laying hold of the Father that is holding them. That's what God does for us. He holds us fast. And that's why we want to pursue him and cling to him and lay hold of him by grace. It's what drives us forward. We know, now we want to know more. We've experienced the amazing love of God. We want more. We've been changed. We want to be changed more. It's the grace and love of Christ that is the fuel of the Christian life of pursuit. John Owen writes, the soul is never satisfied with thoughts of Christ's love to it. I love that. The soul is never satisfied with thoughts of Christ's love to it. In other words, the soul always wants more of Christ. It wants to know more. The beloved delights in the lover. There is no other prize. There is no other purpose. Thus, nothing else really counts for much except for knowing Christ. Everything else must be uh, in and subservient to that and flow out of that. And so we press on to take hold because we have already been taken hold of, which means that the Christian life is both at the same time arresting and are running. It's a resting in who Christ is and who we are in him. And then out of that, from that, it's, it's running for more. It's seeking to know him more, to fully take hold of him, take hold of Christ. Now, how? That was the why. How then do we do that? Last one, number four. Look at verse 15. Fourth point, Christians press on to take, fully take hold of Christ by, here's the how, setting their minds on Christ. Look at verse 15. Twice we have the word think. And I think that means the word think is pretty important here. And remember back that this is a key theme in this whole book. Look back. Let's run through it real quick. Look back at chapter 1, verse 7. This is a long time ago, so I don't blame you for forgetting. I'm not offended when you forget my sermons. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you. Remember, we looked at that word in the Greek. It's the word phroneo, which is one of Paul's favorite words, and it's better translated think. It is right for me to think this way about you. Look down at chapter 2, verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Same word as 1-7. Look at 2-5. Have this mind. Same word. Our verse let those who, of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Look down at 3.19. Those who are enemies of Christ are defined by the fact that their minds are set on earthly things. Look down at chapter 4, verse 2. Euodia and Syntyche need to agree in the Lord. Literally, it says they need to be of the same mind. It's the same word. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. The Philippians have shown their concern for Paul twice. Literally, it says they have revived their thinking of him. They have revived their minding of him. It's the same word. That's a lot of repetition. Everyone says that Philippians is a book about joy in part because of how much the verb rejoice is used. But do you know what verb is used more than the verb rejoice in this book? It's that one. It's think. And at the end of the whole thing, the sort of summary statement before the final closing greetings, Philippians 4, 8. We'll do this in great detail in four months. Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, 
Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I met with someone on Friday uh, who ended up telling me that I needed to read less. I didn't argue with him. He could be right. Uh, Melissa probably agrees with him. Um, but he also told me that I was too focused on theology. Again, didn't argue with him. Some of you probably agree uh, with him. He wasn't being aggressive or antagonistic. Uh, he was polite. It was nice. He was just pointing out a few things. And I'm, just, I'm sure there's some truth to what he was saying. So we went back and forth a little bit. We talked. It was gracious. We parted on good terms. Each went our own way. The whole walk back home and into the gym, I'm thinking about that. What he said. Like, I do love theology. I do I love theology too much. I are my sermons kind of too loaded down with theology? Possibly. I'm far from a perfect preacher, so there's plenty to improve on. But then immediately I got back home to pick up on the sermon, and I was here at verse 15. Thinking of these things, now trying to get back into the text, and reading through the Greek, and I see phroneo, phroneo, think, think, and that got me looking back over what we just did over the whole letter. Think 12 times, I think. And as the Word of God tends to do, I found myself somewhat encouraged. Again, not in the sense that I get everything right. I know that I don't. But here I was struggling over whether or not I emphasize thinking and theology too much, which I may, but then I plop down in front of a verse where Paul emphasized thinking and theology in a book where one of Paul's main themes is a thinking, is an emphasis of thinking and theology in a Bible where God emphasizes thinking and theology. We're talking about knowing Christ. Knowing is thinking. We're talking about pursuing Christ. We're talking about growing in Christ. But we're talking about sanctification and how Paul is pressing on to obtain Christ and Christ-likeness. And how does he encourage the Philippians in this? Verse 15, by thinking this way. Look at the verse again. The mature are those who think in a certain way. This way. Oh, and by the way, if you think wrongly in some way, God will show you that, uh, through either through his word or, or through his people. We're all of us off in some of our thinking. We all of us need to be corrected and to think differently in certain areas. That's what God's word is for. It changes minds. It corrects thinking. It's, it's truth. It is the standard. It is what our thinking is to conform to. And it is also itself the power which transforms that thinking. But Paul is drawing a close connection between Christian maturity and right thinking. He does this all over his letters. Uh, the mind is always first for Paul. What he's after here and encouraging is a basic frame of mind, uh, a mindset, a certain way of looking at everything. The verb rejoice 11 times in the book. The verb think 12 times in the book. Two major themes that are closely interwoven. And so in large part, we rejoice by thinking. And so Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul tells us then to set our minds, same word, on the things above. But what are these things? What does that mean? That sounds abstract. Well, he tells us, verse 1, seek the things that are above where Christ is. The things that are above are Christ, because above is where Christ is. So he's saying, set your mind on Christ. Brothers and sisters, listen, that is how you pursue Christ. That is first and foremost how you pursue Christ. That's how you fully take hold of the Christ who has already fully taken hold of you. Listen, more than anything else, you need to hear about Jesus. More than anything else, I need to hear about Jesus. More than anything else, you need to know Jesus. More than anything else, you need to learn to delight in Jesus. And that cannot happen unless you read about and hear about and study and are taught Jesus. That's where we have to start. And that's what Paul is always doing. Here's Christ. Here's Christ. Look at how amazing he is. Look at what he has done. See him. Understand him. Seek to understand him more. Know, grow, love, delight in Jesus Christ. Everything starts there. If it doesn't start there, we're doing something wrong. 
But it also doesn't stop there. Okay, I see that's, that's the risk. That's where I do understand sometimes the, the love of theology as an end in itself can go wrong. I get that. I, I have that tendency in myself. But Paul never stops there. Paul never separates that which God has joined together. It's never theology or practice, mind or heart, thinking or doing. It's always both for Paul. It's right belief that results in right behavior. It's the thinking that results in the doing. So back to his big summary statement in Philippians 4.8, he says, think about these things. Well, don't miss that it keeps going to Philippians 4.9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Think and practice here and then do. And it's the same thing in our verse 16. Back at 316, only let us hold true to that, to what we have attained. Literally, it means that we are to walk or we are to to live accordingly. We are to live according to the standard that we have been given. We're We're to hold true to it and then live in light of it. And here we're focusing on the fact that you do that first and foremost by fixing your mind on Christ. We must first think this way. This is how you press on and pursue Christ. And maybe, and maybe you're still struggling with this. Maybe you're still aware, like me, uh, that your love and your desire for Christ is just not where you want it to be. Well, I know that for me, part of the problem may be that you still think that your loves and your desires are beyond your control. Right? It's just how you feel and you can't change it and there's nothing you can do about it. That's kind of what our world is saying. This is what you feel, so this is who you are, so no big deal. Kind of follow your heart. Wrong. Right? We know that some things are acquired tastes. Right? I didn't used to like salad. I made a commitment to liking salad in college. It's now my favorite food. Uh, I used to hate the gym and any sort of physical exertion. Now I can't get enough of the gym. I now have to limit my time at the gym. I've always hated fish. I don't want to hate fish. So I'm taking intentional steps to work on that. How? Are you ready for this? Are you ready for me to change your life? Because this is pretty brilliant. How am I developing a taste for fish? By eating fish. (laughs) That's it. You're welcome. I develop a taste for fish by repeatedly exposing myself to the experience of fish. I eat it. I still don't love it. I eat it some more. Well, okay, that one, that one wasn't too terrible. I eat it some more, and one day I am confident that I will actually love and desire fish. Listen, you can change your tastes. And by the grace of God in Christ, you can change and grow in your spiritual tastes. But for many of us, our problem is that we are so full already of spiritual junk food. We are so stuffed with social media. We are full after a nightly binge of Netflix. You know, five hours of Netflix. I just don't have time to get into the word. Right? We, have, we have no time for anything else. Guys, listen. You have to cultivate a taste for the things of God. We have to cultivate this. And it starts with making room. This. It starts with changing your diet. Some of you don't have space or time to appreciate the things of God. Some of you don't have time to, to see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, or at least you think you don't have time. You live and you act like you don't have time, Man, but you do. So cut some of that other stuff out. Psalm 34 8 is such a beautiful phrase. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Make time to taste and see. He's so good that if you are in Christ, the more you are exposed to him, the more you will desire him. Again, but still, what, what exactly does that mean? It still sounds somewhat abstract. How do we do that? How do we taste and see? We do it only by faith. It is by faith that we taste and see. And so it is then by faith that we lay hold of Christ. That's what it means to set your mind on Christ. That's why thinking is so important because it's it's faith. Faith is how we appropriate God's word and work. Faith lays hold of Christ 
And then faith applies Christ. Faith puts on Christ. And Christ is found and is present in his word. In this, this, this book, this book that is living and active, this book that is not just a book, but that according to it, and if we believe it, we believe this, that this is the very word of God to us. God's word spoken to his people. And it is a word that is powerful. And it is a word that accomplishes his work. And so if knowing Christ is of surpassing worth, if being like him helps us to know him, then this is both where we meet him and become more like him. And thus, this is how we set our minds on him. This is how we pursue and lay hold of Christ. Guys, we grow by going to the Bible again and again and again and again for the rest of your life. Some of you are in your 70s and your 80s and you're still growing in Christ because there's so much more. We never get there because he's so infinitely glorious and wonderful. And guess what all of eternity is? It's not sitting there static, like playing the heart kind of thing. It's a progressive, constantly growing and a dynamic understanding of actually who Christ is and the glory of it. And guess what? We never get there in eternity because he's God and he's infinitely glorious. And so we will always be learning and understanding and desiring and delighting in him the more and the more we see. We do it now through his word. We do it now by faith. So think, Paul says, think this way. Think on these things. Think on Christ. That's how you lay hold of him. As one theologian has put it, he says, there is only one way to promote faith. And that is by giving our attention to God more and more and learning to think of ourselves only in light of his grace and power. That's so perfect. I, I go off when I stop thinking of myself in light of his grace and power. And I start thinking of myself in light of me and my lack of grace and, and lack of power. Right? Everything goes off when I turn inward and look at me. Right? We grow, we promote faith by giving all of our attention to him. It's an external outward focus on him, not an internal inward focus on self. And we learn to then think of ourselves in light of him and his grace and power. Uh, the Puritan David Clarkson puts it like this, entertain frequent and delightful thoughts of God. Such will present us to God and make him present with us while they are in our minds. He is in our hearts. Christ enters our hearts when thoughts of Christ's enter our mind. And the meditation of him, in effect, is his inhabitation in us. Oh, that's, I want to just unpack that for 30 minutes. I love that. I won't. Our meditation on him is his inhabitation in us. Faith lays hold of Christ by thinking and meditating on and then resting and trusting in what God reveals to us about his son in his word. So we do this by spending time in his presence. And by that, I mean spending time in his word. We let that then lead us to spend time in prayer informed by this word. We do all of those things in the context of spending time with his people. The ordinary means of grace are how we develop these tastes and desires. The word of God, prayer to God, and the people of God are how you set your mind on Christ and how you pursue him. That's how you strain forward to what lies ahead, which is, which is Christ. And the wonderful privilege of becoming more and more like him, holy, purified, perfected, it's coming. And we have a promise here that it's coming. And so we run after it. We passionately, we pursue him and being like him, knowing that we will do so imperfectly. And so resting first in the fact that he has already perfectly pursued us and fully taken hold of us and is just full of grace towards us. Christ is the goal of the Christian life. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 is the goal of the Christian life. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Just go spend time in that verse. We sang it at the end of the service last week. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, 
I shall see thy lovely face. That's Paul's goal. He knows he's not there. And he knows, like the song recognizes, that he can't fully see and know while sin remains. The freed from sinning comes first. God is progressively, progressively getting us there in this life, and it comes fully in the life to come. Then the seeing of his lovely face, knowing fully then the one who knows us fully now. We talked about this on Wednesday night a few weeks ago. You guys know me, and most of you like me. Great, that's wonderful. My wife knows me and loves me, which is even more amazing because she knows a lot more about me. She knows a lot more of how terrible I am than you do. So her love is more impressive than your love because in light of my sinfulness. God knows me perfectly. God knows me fully in all my sinfulness. And yet he loves me in Christ. That's it right there. There's your love. There's your acceptance. There's your, there's your family. There's your father. There's, there's everything that you're looking for. He fully knows you. And he fully loves you. That's our hope. Right? That's the fuel. That's what we passionately press on to make our own. Christ being like him and being with him. So Christian, pursue Christ by setting your mind fully on Christ. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, help us, we pray. Father, this is so much easier to preach than it is to practice. This is so much easier to affirm, surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ for an hour on Sunday morning. Uh, this is so much more difficult uh, to live in our workplaces and at school in our neighborhoods, surrounded by people who think everything that we just discussed is utterly absurd. Father, help us. Father, convince us that this is true. Do so by showing us Jesus Christ in a way that I cannot do. Father, reveal him to our hearts. Father, give us great delight in the gift of faith. We live now by faith and not by sight. Father, I pray that we would cling to Christ by faith. That we would cling to Christ by faith, by throwing ourselves at your word fusing our lives with your words and what you have revealed to us, your promises uh, to us. Help us to fill our minds with the things of God. Father, I pray that those things would inform and infuse everything that we do and believe and act and think. Father, help us. We want to more passionately pursue Jesus Christ. Father, we want to more fully know. And I pray that you would grow our desire to do that with this wonderful truth, that you fully know us now, in our sinfulness in this very hour, in our sinfulness this morning, in all of the sinfulness in our lives, all the horrible things we want no one else to know about. Father, you know about every single one of them better than we do. Yet in Christ, you have made us your sons and daughters. You love us. You rejoice in us. You are glad in us. Father, make us glad in you. Father, give us a growing desire for your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Praying only in his name. Amen.